Now, we're in our second week of this series called Apex, where we are studying through the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' most famous sermon uh, that he ever preached. He preached on the side of a mountain, so it has gotten the ever-so-clever title of Sermon on the Mount. That's how it got the name. Um, One of Jesus' main goals, though, in preaching this sermon was to really change the way people thought about faith. He wanted to reframe and, and raise the bar on what it meant to be a follower of God and just to, to, to reframe our expectations of what it meant to follow God. Um, you know, a lot of us have grown up in church. You've heard the Sermon on the Mount before. You've read the words before. And because of that, they've just always been kind of a normal part of our faith. Like these are just things like, oh yeah, we understood the Beatitudes, we, all this stuff that, you re- that we're going to read today and in coming weeks. You've heard this stuff before and it just feels normal. And because of that, what we miss oftentimes is how utterly shocking and frankly probably terrifying what he said truly was to the people who were listening. I mean, to the first century Jewish audience, what Jesus was saying, and like he can, and the way you break up the sermon, you know, there's this point and that point, it just kind of rolls on. It would have been one surprising, shocking, scary thing after another. Um, it would be almost as weird and, and off-putting uh, if someone came in here on a Sunday morning and said, hey, God spoke to me, and from now on, when you baptize people, you have to hold them under the water for 10 minutes before you bring them back out. We'd be like, hold it on a minute. That's not what we've ever done. That's probably impossible. Like, nobody can do that, right? Nobody's going to survive that. Nobody's going to be able, if that's a step of faith that we have to take, that's going to not work, right? That's kind of the reaction these people would have had. They would have been like, this is totally impossible, what you're telling us we have to do. And we've probably all felt at some point in our lives moments where we were presented with an option or something we had to do and thought, I can't do that, that's impossible. Uh, When I was a kid, I I lived a fairly sedentary lifestyle, meaning that um, in the summertime you were more likely to find me um, holding a Nintendo controller as opposed to a bat and ball or anything else. I I didn't do any of the summer league stuff very often. Um, And so I didn't do the sports thing. But when I got into eighth grade, for some reason I decided, I'm going to try all the things. I'm going to try all the sports. And so I went out for basketball. That did not go well. I do not have enough coordination to pull that off. Um, you know, I, I, got, I got most improved uh, on my eighth grade basketball team um, because I went from worst to bad. I kind of, I didn't get, I, I, learned, I learned the rules of basketball. That's pretty much probably why they gave me that one. Um, but then after basketball, I thought, I'm going to go out for track. And since I'd never done anything, I didn't know what I was supposed to do in track. And track has all these different events, right? And so um, I, I, the coach, he probably thought, what am I going to do with this kid? Because he wasn't my basketball coach, but he was, it was a small school. He'd seen me play basketball. He knew I didn't have anything, right, to offer to the team. He probably wished that there was a bench on track like there was on basketball so he could sit me on it. But instead, since I didn't, he didn't know what to do with me um, and I didn't know what to do with myself, he just kind of basically, every meet, he just stuck me in four random events. And I was just doing different things every meet, and he was just kind of seeing if anything worked. And so the, what was supposed to be, and usually was the last meet of the year, the sectionals, um, he just said, okay, Bliss, you're going to run the hurdles today. Sure, whatever, coach. I've done everything else. I'll give it a shot. And to his shock, my shock, everyone's shock, I qualified for state. And do not hear that as me talking about my athletic ability. 
there wasn't, it, I mean, it wasn't an impressive lineup, okay? Um, in fact, we weren't, what, I don't know, what's, what's the junior high? It's IHSAA for Illinois, or IE. We weren't in that. There's a Southern Illinois High, high School Athletic Association. We were in that, that league, and so that was what we qualified for. So the, the sectional wasn't a great one. It was on a cinder track. No, it was a dirt track. It wasn't even cinder. So we weren't, you know, it's not impressive, right? But it felt really good. I'd never qualified for anything. And so I thought, here, I found my thing. And so I go to the state track meet, don't do well. Um, but that didn't matter because I qualified for state. And so the next year I get into high school, go out for track, and coach is like, all right, what are the freshmen? What do you guys do? I'm a hurdler coach. I went to state last year. Like, like it was going to be like, ooh, you've been blessed with my presence. And so he sends all the hurdlers out on the track, and for the first time I see how tall a high school hurdle is compared to the junior high hurdle. And it looked to my eyes to be about three feet taller. It wasn't. Um, but for somebody who has no athletic ability and has been bragging about their hurdle ability, it seemed real tall. I actually looked it up. It was, it's only six inches difference, but I mean, it did. It felt like a wall that I was going to have to jump over ten times between the starting line and the finish line, and I just remember thinking, there's not a chance in the world that I'm even going to be able to finish a race, let alone like make this my thing that I do for the whole season, and in that little way, you, th- this is precisely how these people would have felt coming into this. They, they show up to hear the sermon, and on every aspect of following God, Jesus just cranks up the standard. He raises the bar over and over and over again and just changes the way they think about faith so that these people were constantly sitting there wondering, how can anyone do this? What he's asking us to do, what he's telling us faith requires, what he's saying that it takes to be saved, who can do these things? And I want to read uh, one verse from the Sermon on the Mount today that I think that would have been probably one of the more terrifying ver- uh, things to hear, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he is. So this is a salvation comment. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, so it's immediately got that weight of my eternity as at stake. But this beginning part where he says you're never, uh, unless, or unless you exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, that you're in trouble. And now the Pharisees, if you've ever read the first four books of the New Testament, we call them the Gospels. They are Jesus-centered biographies. The books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is from one of them. If you've ever read the Gospels, um, you've seen the Pharisees. They pop up as pretty frequent characters, and they're always presented not in a good light. They're they're not presented very often, um, but they don't talk about, they don't, Matthew and Mark, Luke, and John, they don't explain who the Pharisees were, what they did. They just kind of are mentioned throughout. So let me explain a little bit about who the Pharisees are. Um, Just like we, us today, there's different denominations in Christianity, right? There's Methodists and Lutherans and Presbyterians, Baptists, Christians, and a bunch of others, right? So it's like, well, there, there's little differences, practices, difference, differences in practice, differences in beliefs, but for the most part, we all kind of like, okay, we're all still under this big umbrella of Christian, of being a Christian. And, and the same is tr- was true of first century Judaism. The, there, there was disagreements and differences on how different groups 
interpreted the law and believed how, what it took to follow God. Um, there were some called the zealots. They were known for being very passionate and for being a little bit prone to extremism. Um, another one you see a lot in the New Testament, or the, uh, in the Gospels, excuse me, are the Sadducees. Um, the Sadducees um, rejected a lot of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. They just didn't accept as much of the books as others did. Um, but the Pharisees, on the other hand, what they had done was they decided that um, at their inception, they decided we want to set up a way of following God that ensures that nobody ever breaks God's rules ever again. Um, and this came on the heels of the fact that God had punished all of Israel um, by exiling them, by yanking them out, taking the land away. They lost their independence. They don't have a king anymore. They're not an independent nation. God had punished them for disobedience. And so on the heels of that, the Pharisees kind of come up out of, a, out of this desire, let's do what we can to make sure nobody breaks the rules ever again. And so what they did was they looked at God's rules. And, and let's just imagine that God's like, here's, here's sin, and God's rules are like a fence to keep us out of sin. Well, the Pharisees created their own set of law codes and, and behaviors and, and ways of living that were connected to God's law, but way more restrictive, way more harsh. And the, the idea was, if we can keep these codes, if we can keep these rules, then we're never going to even come close to breaking God's commands ever. And so that was kind of the idea and the heart behind it. And one example Jesus gives in Luke 11 um, he's telling a, a little parable, but he mentions a, a Pharisee who comments that I fast twice a week. And that was a common practice at this point, where Pharisees would start fasting two times a week. I think it was Monday and Thursday were the, the usual days. And, um, but you look in the Old Testament, there's nowhere that talks about fasting twice a week. Nowhere, right? In fact, to me, that's like scary. Like, I don't I don't ever want, I don't want to miss a meal, like let alone you know fast twice a week. That seems like a lot. But in the Old Testament, there was only one day a year that Christian or that the, the Jewish people were called to fast, and it was on the Day of Atonement. We talked about that um, a number of weeks ago. And the Pharisees had decided that if we can do this twice a week, like that just kind of elevates our level of righteousness. That protects us from breaking the laws of God by making their commands that much more restrictive. And so that was just kind of the name of the game. Now, again, they, it, this started out as a, as a good thing. Like, it started out with a good heart. Like, we don't want to break God's commands. But over time, what happened was they just became super focused on their rules and very proud of their ability to keep the rules. And they like to pat themselves on the back for going over and above the call of duty, in a sense. Um, I don't know if you ever went to school with one of those kids um, that, like, always did that little bit extra, and you're like, good grief, this guy over here. Uh, I was in college. I was in a Greek class, like my fourth semester of Greek, which is a hoot of a class, if you can imagine. And so we're in this, and one of the assignments was we had to bring in, every week we'd have to find some article in a biblical scholarly book or whatever, I don't, really, I put, you can tell I put a lot of care into these assignments, right? Um, and we had to find an article and kind of just write our own depiction of what it was, explain it, and that kind of thing. And there was one week this kid came in, one, one of the students, and he said to the teacher, you know, I found an article, and it was good, but it was really short. And so I just couldn't, with integrity, just do that one. So I did, I wrote about two articles this week. And the, yeah, thank you. And, and the teacher, and the teacher's like, 
wow, I really appreciate your heart there. And everyone else in the root class was like, oh, I hate that guy, right? That, that over and above, just kind of like a little bit pat on the back, you know. I, I, he's a nice guy. I know who I, I, I we, we're Facebook friends, right? And so, um, but, but that kind of thing, right, that it, it becomes a little bit about like, I, you, you guys did, yeah, you did what was asked, but we did that much more. Like, that kind of became the attitude of the Pharisees. And they got to where they would look down on people who weren't quite as holy as they are, who didn't follow the rules as strictly as they did. But what happened is everybody else looked at them like kind of spiritual superheroes. Everybody else looked at them and they were like, holy smokes, these people are the most righteous of the righteous. They take God's commands and they do so much more. They go so far over and above. Wow, they're so amazing. They're just the, like, again, spiritual superheroes will never be like them. We can only aspire, and we're glad that we have them around so that we can at least look at the goodness of, of their example. And, and then Jesus shows up and he says, unless you can be better than these people, more righteous than the Pharisees, you don't stand a chance of entering into heaven. And that would have been fearful to these people. I mean, it's the same as being like, all you have to do is be stronger than Superman. Great. This is going to be so easy. Like, all you got to do is be smarter than Einstein, and you're coming right on in. Like, it sounds so easy, but it's such a terrifying idea. But what Jesus was trying to do was not hold the Pharisees up as an example of righteousness. He wanted to reframe what people understood to be righteousness. He was actually kind of pointing out and trying to reveal the Pharisees aren't as righteous as everybody thinks. In fact, you have all misunderstood what righteousness was. You've all misunderstood what God is truly after. And so even though they kept all these rules, Jesus is saying they missed one of the things that was most important about faith. Because being so hyper-focused on their rules, they had begun to think that faith was all about behavior. That that's all God wanted. He just wanted us to clean up our act, to act the right way at the, at the right time, do the right things, and then everything would be fine. If they could just do the routine of religious activities, then God will be pleased with them. And they had kind of reduced faith into a very long list, mind you, of just checking off religious-sounding boxes. And they'd gotten good at it. Like the thing about the Pharisees and all their rules was, they kept them. Like, they did a good job at keeping their rules. That's why everyone was so impressed with them, and that's why they were often so impressed with themselves. They did the, the, the things, right? They kept all the rules. But here's the thing. Our problem, humanity's problem, is not our behavior. Yes, we do bad things, but behavior is simply a symptom of a disease. Our problem is not primarily our behavior. Our problem is that we have sin in our hearts. We have a corrupt heart which manifests itself in wrong behavior, in bad behavior, in sinfulness, in selfishness, and greed, and all of these things. And so Jesus is trying to reveal the Pharisees are shooting at the wrong target. They're aiming for the wrong thing, and he isn't primarily just interested in behavior. Jesus wants our hearts. He's after our hearts, not the behavior. Yes, behavior is important, but but unless the heart is changed, the disease rages on. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this where you've been like, had a fever, the chills, the aches, just feeling generally miserable. And so you pop some ibuprofen or some Tylenol or something, and you feel right as rain in about half an hour to an hour. 
And so you think, oh, I'm back to normal. I can get back to my life. And then you get up and you do all the things you were supposed to do, whether you're at work or you're at home and you're doing dishes and laundry and, you're, and doing all the things, right? And then about six, four to six hours later, that starts to wear off and you feel worse than you did before because you propped yourself up, you dealt with the symptoms with that medicine, and then you used all your energy to carry on, but then you didn't, ha- you didn't do anything about the disease. And when the symptoms came back, you were worse off than you were, you were because you burned all that energy off. That's kind of what Jesus is, is highlighting here. That's kind of what it is when we think all I have to do is do the right things and God will be pleased with me. All I have to do is do the right things and that's how I get into heaven. But that's not the picture Jesus is painting here. To be a follower of Jesus means that he doesn't want us to just act right. He wants us to trust him, to have a relationship with him, to be devoted to him. He wants us to surrender ourselves to him, not just our behavior, but every aspect of who we are. He wants us to be open to being changed, not just our behavior, but the deepest, darkest crevices of our souls. And so out of that devotion, out of that opening ourselves up to Jesus and the work of his spirit, yeah, change comes. Behavior change happens. But, it's, but until we give our hearts, open our hearts to Jesus, we're just dealing with the symptoms. And when it becomes about that, your faith is just about those external things. And I think it ceases to be faith, at least the faith that Jesus came to walk us towards. Now, even worse than just dealing with the symptoms is when we get distracted, like the Pharisees did, and make it all about the behaviors, what we are essentially doing is we are protecting the sin. We end up protecting our sin. We keep it covered. We keep it hidden. We do all these things external. We can you know, do all the, the right churchy-looking things. We can look like amazing Christians. We can look like great men and women of faith. All the while, our sin is hidden under a veneer of good works, and we never let God deal with the root issue. In fact, Jesus calls out this as a major problem of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They'd become so focused on their external behavior, and they were so busy celebrating their own faithfulness that sin was allowed to thrive and move around unchecked in their hearts. And where this comes to our lives is obvious if we take a second to think about it because what we there's a there's a a common thing that we do when you read any story okay when you read a story or watch a movie do you relate to the good guy or the bad guy good guy right like you might have like the first time you saw star wars you might have thought Darth Vader's pretty cool, but I'm not Darth Vader. Like, I'm Luke Skywalker. My lightsaber's blue, not red. Like, that's just kind of how 
we look at it. We associate with the good guy. We root for the good people, the, the good side, the, the good team to defeat the bad side. And so we always kind of assume that we're on the good side. And so the same probably happened in your brain if you've ever read through the Gospels. You want to be on Jesus' side, and he's always kind of pointing out the, the mistakes and failings of the Pharisees, and you're like, yeah, get it. Get those Pharisees, Jesus. They're the bad guys. And so we never think that we're like the Pharisees because we are the good people. We're on Jesus' team. But the reality is, it is so easy to be exactly like the Pharisees and to fall into that exact same trap of making it all about our outside activities, our external behaviors. And we can, again, do, come up with our own list of what it means to be a good church person. Come to church, okay? Pray, read the Bible, give, serve. You know, you can add all the things you want to do. Um, there's other weird ones that we've added on, you know, things like don't run in church. We, I hear that every year at VBS, don't run in church. No offense, but that kind of really kills the mood at VBS, you know. We know it, yeah, that really d- drops the, uh, the, the energy level. Um, but, but there's all, you see, we, we can add whatever rule you want. Different denominations have their different rules, but we kind of make our own list of rules. And so it's like, okay, I've done all the things. And what you can do is you can look like a really devout person of faith. You can feel like you've got it all taken care of because you've done all the things, except humbly surrender your life and your heart to Jesus. You've done everything but allow his Holy Spirit to come and reveal the deepest darkness of your soul so that you can confess it and repent it and start moving away from it by God's power. You you know, it's, it's incredibly easy for us to slide into that because here's the thing it's comforting to feel like oh I've got a list it's got 20 things on it I did all 20 things I'm good I'm good anybody else list people checker offers yeah that feels so good to check like sometimes you like I'll just put stuff on on like that I've already done like like come to work yes because it's just satisfying to get a few of those things to check off. And so if you can boil all of this stuff down, and even your standing with God and, where you, and, and your status for eternity, if you can boil all that down into a list, it is comforting to feel like you've got it all figured out and you've got it all together. And opening yourself up to have the true evil of your, your heart and the greed and the, and the lust and the hatred and the bigotry and all the things that secretly exist in Letting that be dug up and drawn up, that's a little frightening. That's humbling. That's not pat yourself on the back because you've done all the things. That's humble yourself because you're truly seeing the reality of who you are. It's so easy to want to be like the Pharisees. And I think one way to tell, if you've maybe fallen into this trap, there's quite a few ways probably to tell, but one of the ways is to simply start to examine and ask yourself, what do you find more comfort in? Do you find more comfort in the reality that Jesus loved you enough to die on the cross for you or that you have done all the right things? Like, do you find more comfort at the end of the day that you're a mess and, God, you still love me and you are, show me such mercy and you show me my value. You even sent your son here to, to die in my place. I deserved it and he took that punishment. Do you find that comforting? Or at the end of the day you go, Phew, 
I read my Bible, and I prayed today, and I did, okay, I called that person who needed a phone call. I did the things today. Which one brings you more comfort? And that might not be an instant answer for you, and it might be something you need to take some time to think about. But I do think that we've got to understand the difference between outward activity, dealing with the symptoms, and actually taking a step back from our egos and letting God deal with the reality of our hearts. And so I would encourage you to take some time this week to examine and evaluate your faith. Being a Pharisee is such an easy trap to fall into. And if you start to think, maybe I am a Pharisee, like that can be, that can be an ego boost or an ego killer that's hard to admit, right? Maybe I am Darth Vader. Oh boy. Like nobody wants to say those words. Maybe I am the bad guy. Nobody wants to admit that. But if you start to think, maybe I am more like the Pharisees, don't panic. Just be grateful that God opened your eyes to it before it's too late. That you've realized, man, I've built this house of cards. Of this, my faith is a house of cards built on my effort, and my effort is not good enough. And so God comes along and he knocks it down for you so that you can build something that's real and meaningful and lasting. And so if you become one, like I said, don't be ashamed. Just be grateful that God knocked down that house of cards. And sure, by following Jesus, your behavior will get better slowly but surely. But that is always going to be secondary. First and foremost, Jesus' main concern will always be the status of your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the life that you give us. We are grateful for the honesty of Scripture. And I just pray that we would understand and, and revel in some of the shocking things that Jesus said, that we would be able to realize just how much you want for us, and that you love us so much that you're not just content to let us clean up our actions, but you want something better, something deeper, something more lasting. You didn't just come to, to clean up our behavior, you came to make us truly clean inside and out. And so I pray, that, Father, we would be a people who are willing to ma admit that maybe, yeah, sometimes we're more like the Pharisees than we should be, and that we'll be grateful for these shocking words of Jesus where we're able to maybe um, realize that we need to be humbly submitting our hearts to you on a daily basis, humbly ready to acknowledge that that you want to do something more with us, and that maybe, maybe we've been doing a lot of church-related, religious-sounding, upright-looking things, and that we've started to put our hope in those things, but, but maybe you need to bring us back to the fact that our hope is on nothing but the blood of Jesus, and that it is in Christ alone that we are saved. It is in Christ alone that we find hope in, to, in tomorrow. It is in Christ alone that we have hope um, to be changed and to made new, it is in Christ alone that the depths of our souls can be remade so that we can live and honor you the way that you deserve. So, Father, help us to be um, adamant and not content to be like the Pharisees. Let us not be content with just behavior, but let us be willing and able to fully surrender all that we have to you so that our hearts could be um, revealed, our souls um, opened up before you so that Anything unholy inside of us can be removed. Anything unrighteous can be removed and worked on for your glory and our good. So help us, Father, 
by the power of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit to be made new from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.